The rest of us I would invite to turn to the book of Amos. We'll be looking today at just a little bit more than the first chapter. This is a little different. Perhaps your Bibles, like mine, when you put them down, just fell open to Acts. This is a little bit different as we move to the Old Testament, to a very different type of literature. We move away from narrative and to the prophetic utterances of one of the Lord's prophets. We'll be in Amos for a few months, Lord willing, 11 sermons to be exact. And then when we're done with that, we will turn back to the New Testament, to the book of Titus. But for now, I would ask that you would give your attention to Amos. We'll be reading this morning from chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3. I remind you that this is indeed the very word of the living God. Even as our Lord Jesus walked the earth and took water and made it wine, so our Lord takes His word and makes it real to us to sustain us, to equip us. His word is inerrant, it is sufficient, and it is authoritative. Amos, chapter 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazel, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kit, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will set a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. 
So I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds, with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst, and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's ask for his blessing upon it to our lives. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would show us your word, that you would remind us of your power, your goodness, that we might see your will for our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is not exactly the most upbeat way to begin a new sermon series. Woe upon woe, for three transgressions and for four, fire and brimstone. This might be the definition from Amos of a fire and brimstone sermon, because there's actual fire coming upon those whom Amos is speaking against. This is, as I said before, a very different type of literature, but we must resist the temptation to look at a book like Amos very differently than we look at a book like Acts. You see, we look at Acts and it becomes obvious to us that this is the New Testament church and these are patterns we could follow, principles we can put into practice. And we are tempted to look at Amos and to see some kind of historical judgment upon people that we don't know and that we've never met. When in reality, this prophetic word is recorded for you and for me. That we might be changed. To state the obvious, you know that not every prophet of God is recorded in Holy Scripture. We don't have a book of Elijah. We don't have a book of Elisha. This prophecy of Amos is recorded for a reason. And the reason is to make us aware of the Lord's grace and to change us based upon that. This morning, in the midst of this woe and destruction, I would like us to see three things. First, I would like us to see the prophet, Amos himself, who he is, what he's doing. Second, I'd like us to see his message. <clears throat> what is he actually saying here in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2? And what in the world does that have to do with me and with you? And then third, I would like us to see His Lord. The Lord of Amos, the Lord God Almighty, who is not only His Lord, but yours and mine as well. The prophet, His message, 
and his Lord. Let's begin then by looking at the prophet. We see who he is in a very brief picture in chapter 1, verse 1. This is Amos who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. He lived in Tekoa during the days of Uzziah and Jeroboam. The first thing that we see is Amos is an unlikely man to be the servant of the Lord. Now, the bulk of this prophecy is directed at the kingdom of Israel under Jeroboam. We'll see more and more of that as we go through it, but you need to understand that, to understand a bit about Amos and how God is using Amos, because Amos is from Tekoa. Now, if you have maps in the back of your Bible, you can find Tekoa by looking at the kingdom of Israel and Judah, and you go south about as far as you can possibly go south, and you find Tekoa, south of Jerusalem, south Judah. This is the man that the Lord is sent to Israel. It would be like the Lord sending a prophet to point out the sins of the people of Maine and choosing the perfect man from Mississippi. Or going in the midst of Mobile and finding somebody from the Bronx. It just doesn't make sense, especially according to the way we think about evangelism, the way we think about connections. We're so concerned in our day and age about finding connections outside of the Word of God, of finding entrees, of finding ways that we can get around society. We would never, if we were planning an evangelistic mission, we would never, if we were planning a disciplinary mission, take someone from Tekoa and send them to Israel. Lord, don't you know there's a war going on between the two of these nations? Don't you know they hate each other? Don't you know that in Judah, the Israelites are Johnny Reb? They rebelled against David and his kingdom. And don't you know in Israel all the Judites are slackers. They don't know what it takes to build a real kingdom. This is the man that God chooses. He's also a very simple man. He is a, a he is among the shepherds, the text tells us. The word is related. It's not quite what we would imagine. As soon as you hear that word, you think of Jesus and the good shepherd, and you picturing in your mind now the crook, right, and the lily white fleece. No, this is really a goat herder. You know what goats are like, right? If you think sheep are bad, how'd you like to be a herder of goats? They eat everything, including your clothes if you get too close. They use their horns to butt you. They kick. This is a very common job. He is a simple man. This is especially a challenge for us in the Reformed world because, you see, we are used to ministers, leaders, and elders who are degreed. You can go into my office and see my big law degree and my big graduate degree and my big seminary degree. We just expect that. As a matter of fact, there are certain churches where if you don't have doctor in front of your name, you can't minister and preach because you're not worthy. Amos is a bit more of an assembly line worker. He's a blue-collar guy. He's a sack lunch, lunch bucket, hard hat kind of a guy. 
This is who the Lord is using. So if you think that the Lord cannot use you because you haven't gone to three graduate schools, because you're just an ordinary folk, Amos proves you wrong. God uses someone like Amos. He's not only an unlikely man, but this is an unusual time in which this prophecy is taking place. It is during the reign of Jeroboam, the text tells us. And just briefly, we'll see more about this in detail. You need to understand the contours of the reign of Jeroboam. It is the definition of peace and prosperity in Israel. It is an unusual time of peace, and it is the height of military power in Israel. You see, Israel had been fighting the Syrians for decades. And just at this point in time, the Assyrians, who are an entirely different type of people, come down and attack and destroy the Syrians, and then for some inexplicable reason, they go to sleep on the job. Instead of attacking Israel, Assyria goes into a, about a three-decade nap. They will come out of it with a vengeance, as some of you recall from the books of Kings. But right now, Israel's greatest enemy has been destroyed. A potential enemy is asleep, and Jeroboam takes advantage of that, and he goes on a conquest campaign. Israel is larger than it has ever been. It gets back to the, the borders of Solomon. Power! but also prosperity because there's peace. Peace brings trade. And peace and trade bring money. And money just flows into Israel. We'll see in weeks to come that it doesn't flow to everyone in Israel. But it is a time of peace and prosperity. There is a false sense of security that Israel has. If you were to speak to an Israelite in the days of Amos, they would say things have never been better than they have been. This kingdom will go on for centuries. We are powerful. And yet, in a short period of time, it will all come crashing down. In this prosperity, there is also some cracks. Because you see, the rule of law is ignored in Israel. Part of what happens in the prosperity is the poor are oppressed and the rich get wealthier. Morality is lost. There is every form of perversion that you could think about. But in the midst of this, there is a very popular state religion that I use in quotes. It is a religion invented by Israel. They have given up on the, Israel, the, the religion of the true and living God in the temple, and they have invented temples at Dan and Beersheba. It is a religion that is not based on revelation at all, but it is indeed based on tradition. Oh, there is good attendance in the churches. The sacrifices happen on time. The music especially is wonderful and wonderfully thought out. There are musicians galore. There is everything that we might expect on the surface of a good church. There's only one problem. It's all directed by man. None of it's directed by God. This is an application for us that we must think we must always guard our hearts, that our religion must always be heart-centered. Some of you may take the time to read at the very bottom of my emails after the phone numbers and the email addresses one of my favorite quotes in the world from J.C. Ryle. 
that the heart is the main thing in true religion. It is the hinge and turning point in the condition of man's soul. You see, the surface can be clean. But if the heart is not alive, there is trouble. This society is on its last legs and they don't know it. Only Amos does. And he's going to be pointing it out. Thirdly, we think about Amos. This is a an unmistakable job that he has. His job is to bring God's message to God's people. At least God's corporate nominal people. And what is it that a prophet does? Well, we get some help here from our catechism. The shorter catechism, question 24 says, that Jesus in His office of prophet reveals to us by His Word and His Spirit the will of God for our salvation... And the larger catechism adds, for our edification. This is the job of the prophet to bring not his own message, but to bring the message of God. And this is the job of the prophet today. Now there will be no book of Fred, or book of John, or book of Bob, or anything else. But the job of the preacher is to be a prophet. To bring the word of God to the people of God. To not have his own message, no matter how good that message might be. No matter how good a call to live a better life or a more successful life. Or to endorse the best political uh, ends. The, The job of the prophet of God, of the preacher of God, is to bring the word of God. But that's not just true of the preacher. Because you see, men, you are called to be prophets in your own home, to lead your families, to declare to them the will of God for their edification that they might be built up, for their salvation that your children might claim the promises of God. Men, you cannot be asleep at the switch. This is an unmistakable job that is before us. Because you see, the job of the prophet is not foretelling primarily, not telling the future, It is foretelling. It is bringing God's people His Word because they need it. There's another sense in which I want you to think about Amos and his job, and I can't help it because, well, it's a bit near and dear to me. The prophets are also, in a sense, covenant lawyers. They are prosecuting attorneys. They are suing Israel for breaking their covenant with God. They have broken the contract. They have broken the treaty. And the prophets are the ones calling them back to honor what they have promised. We'll see much more of this to come. Well, this is who the prophet is. But what is his message then? Well, we see here in this first chapter that the context is this is a veritable roll call of the nations surrounding Israel. This is very easy for Israel to hear, for Judah to hear. It's it's very easy for the church to hear because there is one sense in which we can look and we can say, this is those people. If we want to get fancy, we could say, well, Moab is like the secular humanists. And Gaza are like these people. And the Edomites are like those enemies we have. There is one common denominator with all of these groups. They serve different gods. They live in different places. They've done different things. The only thing they have in common is that none of them 
have received special revelation from God. Does that frighten you? Because you see, they're still called to judgment and account. None of them have Bibles. None of them have direct revelation from God. What they do have is a conscience. They have the law of God written upon their, upon their conscience. What they do have is creation set before them. This is a living, breathing testimony to the fact that none are exempt from the judgment of God. Don't think that you are exempt simply because you didn't grow up in a Christian family or because you don't own a Bible or because you don't have the Bible memorized. No, we are all called to serve the Lord and to believe and trust in Him. All of us. Even the pygmy in Africa. All of us. Because you see, God speaks to all humanity. Now the interesting thing about this is we have six nations that are guilty of every sort of ridiculous, preposterous, and filthy religious practice. Sacrifices of humans. Sexual immorality. Abuse. You notice that in this entirety of this passage, God doesn't mention their religion once. He doesn't mention their worship once. God is calling them to account, not for their sins against Him, which He could number innumerably, but for their sins against their fellow men, women, and children. And it's a very structured indictment. You might just think at first glance, this is Amos just picking nations out of a hat and pronouncing judgment on them. But it is, it is really very structured. We're going to see it in three ways. There is an indictment of general relationships, an indictment of particular responsibilities, especially brother to brother, and then an indictment on the special claims of life that the strong have to the weak. So the first thing that we see, the first couplet, if you will, the first two are Damascus and Gaza. And this teaches us that we are to value people. We are to value people. Now, Damascus is to be punished here. And they, what they are to be punished for is because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Now, I want you to get a, a vivid image in your mind here. Do you know what, what threshing is and what you do to thresh? You take grain and what you do is you separate it out so that you might make profit from it. So you separate the wheat from the chaff. And you can do it in several ways. If you're in a place where there's wind, you can throw it up in the air and, and run through it with rakes. Or you can take big boards with nails and you can run them over the grain and pound it and separate it out. Now, do you hear what they're being accused of? Literally, of taking men of Gilead and throwing them on the floor and running over them with iron threshing implements. 
Now, we know from the Scriptures that Damascus, that Hazel, was one of the most wicked, barbarous of men imaginable. The prophet Elisha wept in his presence because he said, I know all of the horrible things you're going to do to my people. But even if we push that aside and say, well, Amos probably isn't talking about that literally. What is Damascus doing here? What they are doing is they are taking people and they are manipulating them. They are hurting them for their own gain. You see, we have to be careful. We have to remember that people are not things. We cannot like Ben-Hadad and Hazel say, well, you know, War is war. There's a war going on after all. We have to do what we have to do. Now, regardless of your politics, when someone says, well, you know, there's a war on terror going on. If we have to torture some people, we have to do it. If you are a Christian, that should make your skin crawl. Because people are not things. That doesn't mean we don't prosecute the war to its fullest. That doesn't mean we don't seek to find justice. But we do not set aside what we know is right and what the Lord has told us is right for an end. That's the way of Damascus. Gaza takes a little bit of a different tactic on the same issue. You see what happens here for them. They carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. You see, Gaza was the Philistines' commercial center. It was a business metropolis. And if life is hard, right? Business is even harder. Right, men? Right, ladies? You gotta work hard to make business work, and sometimes you gotta cut a few corners. Sometimes you just gotta do what you gotta do. And in Gaza, it meant that they gathered up men, women, children, old people, and babies and sold them into slavery. And when the women cried, as children were taken out of their arms, they would hit them in the face and say, shut up, we got to make some money here. i got a family to feed. God sees that. God sees the children that are taken out of the hands of people in the Sudan, India. Pakistan. God sees the pain that you go through as little pieces of your children's souls are gnawed at by society. There is a judgment coming. God is not asleep at the switch. He is aware. But we must remember that we are not to be like Damascus. We are not to be like Gaza. We are to value people. People are not things. We're not only to value people, we are to value relationships. Look at the next couplet, Tyre and Edom. For Tyre, they are delivered unto punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Now, this is similar to the indictment on Gaza, but do you notice the little bit of a difference? They are also selling people into slavery to Edom, but with a twist, they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. You see, this reminds us that we are to keep our word. You see, they had sworn a covenant of friendship and brotherhood with 
Israel and they broke it for their own gain. Do you know at all of the finest law schools in America, they will teach you a principle of contract law. And that is, if you make a contract with someone else, and you can make more profit from breaking that contract than keeping it, it is the good thing to do to break the contract, try and provide compensation, and get the extra. But of course, there's only one problem with that. The world just isn't just about money and profit. It's about integrity. Young people, as you grow and as you get ready to go off to school, the one thing that you have that is always with you, that no one can take away but you can give away, is your good name. Keep your word. Even when it's painful. This is important. Now, this doesn't mean we should always keep our word every time, no matter what. There are instances where Herod should say, I don't care if I promised you half the kingdom. You can't have John the Baptist's head. Right? One young girl, I, I, I read a comment, one young girl said that the answer, what Herod should have given was, well, John the Baptist is in the other half of my kingdom. So you can't have him. So we need to be careful not to use our word as a means to sin, but we need to keep our word and be careful what we promise. What about Edom? Now this is interesting. Edom is to be punished because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. Now Edom has already been indicted twice in the slave trade with Tyre and with Gaza. But what they are indicted for is not for that. What they are indicted for is their delight in Israel's pain. Because they cast off all pity and they desired to see pain in Israel. They had a great hatred for Israel and there was no reason for it. They were related to Israel. You know what the other name for Edom is? It's Esau. Who was Esau's brother? Israel. Jacob. But you see, they delighted in it. Psalm 137, verse 7, tells us that the Edomites said in the day of the destruction of Jerusalem, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to the foundations. Wipe them out. Where they should have been a help. Where the bonds of family relations should have drawn them together. All there was was hatred. You see, this hatred got in them and it poisoned all of their lives. This kind of hatred, hatred that you hide in your heart, can affect you. You don't need to be an Edomite. Because you see, our Lord Jesus Christ reminded us in Matthew 6, if you do not forgive others their trespass, neither will your Father forgive your trespass. That's not because God is some kind of cosmic chalkboard where He has to have part A before He can do part B. Because if you don't forgive your brother, you have hatred in your heart. And if you have hatred in your heart, you can't love the Lord. Finally, we see in his message, not only are we called to value people and value relationships, we are called to value the weak. Look at the Ammonites. They are to be punished because they have ripped open the pregnant women in Gilead. And we look then at the Moabites, 
They are to be punished because they burned alive the bones of the king of Edom. Now, what does this mean? It means that not only have we looked at general relationships, how we should treat each other, and then we've looked at the bonds that should draw us closer and should keep hatred out of our hearts, but here we see there is a special responsibility for those who are strong to care for those who are weak. This is a biblical principle. This is not an option. This is what we are called to do. You see, for the Ammonites, they had grand ambition, and their ambition would not be stopped by a couple of pregnant ladies and unborn children. They were going to get what they wanted, when they wanted, how they wanted it. And if that isn't the definition of the abortion plague in America today, I don't know what is. Does a child get in the way of education? Well, then take care of it. Does a child get in the way of your economy? Well, then just take care of it. Does a child get in the way of a relationship you want to have? Well, then just take care of it. You see, the Bible calls us as believers to take care of the weak, to not oppress them, to protect them. And this is historically true in the Bible. It's in the law of Moses. There's a wonderful example in 1 Samuel 30 where David finds an Amalekite that has just been left behind to die by a pagan. And David stops and feeds him and heals him and talks with him to protect him. Because you see, that is the nature of who God is. God in Deuteronomy 10 is described as the one who executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He's described as the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows in Psalm 68. The Moabites have a little bit of a different spin on this. If if the Ammonites are looking at the future and saying we need to be harsh to protect our future, the Moabites are looking at the past and saying we're not going to give up on our hatred in the past. Do you see this? It's an irrational hatred. Look in verse 1 of chapter 2. They burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. That's not exactly something that would be at the top of somebody's to-do list, right? Even a wicked person's. You might want to steal their money. You might want to hurt them. You might want to break up their marriage. But why would you be so concerned that after they were dead, you would burn their bones to nothing? It doesn't make any sense at all. That's the kind of hatred that Moab has. It's a hatred that is driven by vengeance. So this is where it comes to you and to me. We may not may have any fires set up in our backyards to burn people's dead bones. But if we're honest, there are times when we don't want to give up our hold on vengeance. Isn't that true? The Bible tells us vengeance is the Lord's. But that's pretty hard to put into practice. You see, here we have a vivid example. Their vengeance has gone so haywire that they want to go after the weakest of the weak, the dead. We are called to protect the weak. Well, we've seen Amos the prophet. We've seen his message that is a message 
sharp. Now let's take a brief look at Amos' Lord. What we see from this passage are just a few brief things. First, we see that the Lord knows what is going on. He sees that earthly relationships have a heavenly dimension. You may not think about that every day, but the way you treat your wife is observed by the Lord. The way you treat your husband is observed by the Lord. Children, the way you obey your parents is observed by the Lord. The relationships that we have here have heavenly import. Because you may notice that one thing that runs through all of this, all of these sins, is the great sin of pride and self-pleasing. I will get what I want when I want it, and I don't care about anyone else. And you see, this is throughout the entirety of the world. There is no one who escapes the Lord's sight. If God is good, how can this be? How can all of these horrible things happen? Well, this problem only happens for the believer. Because you see, for the atheist, this is not a problem. Good things shouldn't happen because there's no good, because there's no God. The way we deal with the problem is to know that God sees, and God knows, and God will bring justice. Maybe not as quickly as we want, But He will bring justice. Because you see, the other thing we see from this text is that the Lord not only knows, He roars. Do you see how this begins? The Lord roars from Zion. Now, I don't like to get too close to lions. I'm not exactly an animal guy. But I did a little bit of research. And do you know when a lion roars? Right before it is about to pounce. It is an announcement that you are a wildebeest sandwich. Forget it. It is when the final lunge happens. And that is what is happening here. The Lord is roaring from Jerusalem. The Lord is saying, Enough! Three transgressions and for four. I won't put up with this anymore. You deserved it in one transgression. In three, and now you've gone to four. It's There's so many of them. They're they're multiplied. I cannot have any more patience, the Lord says. Because the Lord, of course, is holy. And we see that in the judgment that comes. It is a judgment of what? Fire. Burning fire and holiness. Does that frighten you? It seems like Amos is a lot of destruction and, and scariness and fire and doom and brimstone. But we have to remember who God is. Because it is not just the one who roars, it is the Lord who roars. And in your Bible, that should be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It is the covenant name of God. It is the great I Am. It is the one who spoke to Moses. And after he told him how holy he was, he said, I am going to redeem a people. You see, God is indeed holy and just, but He is also forgiving. He is merciful. We need to remember that not only does the Lord roar, but He forgives. There are two sides to this God. This wondrous, marvelous God. He is roaring at Israel because He wants them to repent. To come to Him. 
We must not fall in either of the twin ditches of error. We must not forget God's holiness and be complacent, but we must not forget His compassion. Be hopeless. Amos wants you to see that God is a God of forgiveness. That God is a God of protection. That He's looking out for His people. And sometimes that means calling them on their sin. Is this the God that you know? Is this the God that you long to know more? I pray that it is. Week upon week, we will learn more how the Lord will protect us from ourselves and keep us from our sin for His goodness and glory. Let's pray.